You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture and all things related to it. New episodes are released daily. For more information, check out glossahouse.com and subscribe to our channels on Spotify and YouTube. Welcome and enjoy. Hello and welcome to Proof Text. I'm Michael Halcom and I'm here with my friend, Dr. Mario Melendez, which has to be the best. Greetings professor name ever dr mario um we're all kind of jealous about that i think <laughs> i don't know <laughs> dr dre's not oh oh that's good too yeah um do, do your students uh call you dr mario or dr melendez yeah. no they they call me dr mario so whenever um i graduated from my phd at new orleans seminary i was actually hooded as dr mario and so um I go by Dr. Nice. Mario. The only person that calls me Dr. Melendez is our president. Um, hmm. So yeah, it's it's great fun. And so like yeah. I have the like the Dr. Mario uh, on my door and everything. Excellent. Yeah. Well, that's a a great moniker there. A great name. Um, yeah. You could probably do some amazing Photoshop stuff with that too. Yeah. Um, except Nintendo's copyright infringement happy. So. I am not about to try that. Uh, oh man, I'm surprised some uh, some uh, hilarious freshmen or you know haven't haven't tried stuff like that. Um, so. A couple of them started to, and then realized that they were crossing copyright stuff with Nintendo. Oh, oh, um, I do keep hoping that DrMario.com will become available. There's mm. nothing on it; nothing's built on it, but Nintendo owns it, and so I'm like, just. Just sell me the 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 web page, guys. Come on. Wow. So, otherwise, right now my my uh, website is drmario.me, as in me. So drmario.me. Um, All right. So people can find you at drmario.me. Yeah. That's still a good URL, dude. That's it it works. It yeah. works. Um. So tell, I mean, if anybody's been watching the podcast at all, they already know who you are because you have sure. a weekly. You have a weekly segment, a weekly episode, but just on the off chance that we get a new viewer or something like that, yeah. um, say a little bit about yourself, who you are, where you're at. Yeah, definitely. Um, well, so my name is Mario Manuel Catalino Melendez. Um, we have lots of names in our family. Uh, my daughter has four names. And so mm -hmm. we like to say that you could follow up any of our names with, you killed my father, prepare to die. Um <laughs> A little Inigo Montoya. Yeah, right. Um, so, but I am Filipino, Cajun, French with Spanish. And um, so my family speaks lots of languages. I grew up in South Louisiana. So hence LSU Tigers. Mm -hmm. And um, so I was born and raised there. Went to Samford University. I didn't finish at Samford because Katrina hit New Orleans and I had to move home to help rebuild. Mm -hmm. And so I finished at Level College in New Orleans. Then I went off and did my first master's at Union University. Uh, started my doc work at Mid-America Baptist Theological Seminary in Memphis. Um, did some Egyptology, biblical languages, stuff like that while I was there. Um, transferred to New Orleans to finish my PhD in biblical interpretation, uh, minoring in Old Testament backgrounds. So uh, that's my love is Old Testament, Old Testament backgrounds. I got into linguistics because um, it was necessary for my degree, not necessarily because I love linguistics. Um, but I since have come to love linguistics and especially biblical languages and looking at there's more depth to the story. It doesn't change the story, 
Um, and hopefully we can talk about that, but it does add yeah. more color to the story. Yeah. Right. And so I've fallen in love with that. And ultimately the Lord opened the doors and I got hired uh, here to Oklahoma Baptist University. So I am currently sitting in Oklahoma, iced over because it's two degrees mm -hmm. outside. Wow. Um, so on the, on the, um, the book bio on the back of like your mm -hmm. Glosa House book, you published a few things with Glosa House. Um, at least on one of them, I remember reading, you know, you, you grew up in Louisiana, but mm -hmm. there's this line in there that talks about you growing up in the deaf community. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Say, say a little bit about that. Cause I haven't really heard much about that. Sure. Yeah. That'd be, that's a, a fun idea. Okay. So, uh, my mama interprets for the deaf in New Orleans. Um, so New Orleans sign is like the uh, steamboat, like the wheel on a oh. steamboat. And oh. so that's where it comes from. So uh, so growing up in the deaf community, I knew how to sign and interpret because of my mama. And so my mom was the uh, teacher um, principal at the Louisiana School for the Deaf. And so because of this, I understand the sign and... Um, I'm lazy at signing the truth, <laughs> but I understand. And I, I sign fine. I, I think. Um, and so my mom taught at the Louisiana school for deaf before that she taught at uh, Tennessee school for the deaf after her master's and came to Louisiana. Um, and then when I was born, mom got out of the deaf school system and opened up her own business interpreting for the deaf. And so, uh, I grew up with deaf neighbors, deaf friends. I went to deaf kids camp every summer, um, for, for a church. And, um, and so always my mama was always interpreting in church every Sunday. So, um, so I, I learned to sign and sing at the same time and, and all these weird things. And so really I tell people my second language really honestly is sign language, um, mm. because my mom signed it to me ever since I was little. And she's doing that with our grand, uh, my daughter, uh, her oh, grandbaby. She, anytime she talks to her, she signs to her. And um, so Lena will grow up knowing sign language. Now my parents also, fun story, have moved up here to Shawnee. And my mom is the adjunct, adjunct professor for sign language at Oklahoma oh, wow. uh, Baptist That's University amazing. now. So wow. she teaches courses in sign language and interpretation and stuff of that sort. So, That's but great. yeah, school for the deaf. Um, I, for a while, was on the steering committee for the uh, Deaf Bible Society, helping bring about that new translation that came out two years ago for the deaf. It's the first Bible translation for the deaf that's ever been created. Um, and it's actually an app that you can download to your phone. And uh, because deaf people do not, they don't understand English the same as you and me. Um, and it, it, deaf sign language in America is actually French. And a lot of people don't realize that. Um, ASL American sign language is actually French sign language, um, wow. because the British refused to help the just recently successful colonies that separated learn sign language. So oh, the French were like, Oh, we'll come over and teach you that. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a great story. Uh, Monsignor Gaudet, who, uh, ended up leading about bringing the Gaudet university in Washington, DC, um, the only deaf university in the world, um, was also a minister. So, uh, and he translated from the Hebrew, his one book that he published, which was, uh, the book of Joshua. Um, and so that's a really cool thing that a deaf guy teaching wanted to do the Hebrew language as well. So it's kind of a, 
I don't know, a, a neat circle of life for me personally, yeah. I guess. So Absolutely. yeah, it's, I don't do much by way of deaf ministry. Um, there's not that much to be done here. My mom leads the deaf ministry at, at their church here in town. Um, but there's not that many deaf people here in comparison to South Louisiana. South Louisiana mm -hmm. had a lot of deaf people because of the French. So, um, and that's a whole interesting thing. So like, for instance, mm -hmm. um, really quick, the English ended up having the bleeding disorder because of inbreeding, um, hemophilia and the French because of Royal inbreeding ended up having deafness brought about. And wow. so that's why uh, South Louisiana, due to the French influence and the French migrancy, have a lot of deafness there. So, wow, wow, yeah. that's fascinating. I've never heard anything like that. Wow. Yeah. We, so your your um university uh, last year, I think it was, was hit by a tornado. And the I night remember, my daughter was born. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, that's a crazy story too. I remember, uh, so let's, let's talk real just briefly about both of those. I yeah. remember you telling me that you guys were in the hospital mm. and like all the women in the like delivery ward or whatever just started having the baby something to do with yeah. like the barometric pressure or something it is like that. yeah yeah that, that's a crazy story and then the school getting hit i saw some of your pictures right so um it was a wednesday night because my wife uh asked us to not go to church she was very pregnant and was like i don't want to be around more people going why aren't you why haven't you had the baby yet um, you, you probably remember those days with your wife. And so I was like, that's fine. So we got Chick-fil-A and was at home. Um, and then, uh, the, my mom called and several other people called and was like, Hey, is, is Becca feeling okay? Cause you know, storms are coming in and babies love storms. I'm like, what y'all talking about? And, uh, sure enough, the storms started sweeping across, um, the state. This was April 19th. And, um, as soon as the first tornado siren went off here in town, my wife comes to me and says, uh, my water broke. Wow. And we're like, oh, great. And, uh, then the power goes out and, um, and it's a big storm. We know there's lots of tornadoes. Thankfully, our side of town, uh, has never been hit with a tornado because we're on the Eastern side of town. It would have to plow through the entire city to get to us. And so we figured we were pretty safe. Um, but the hospital is nowhere near us. And so once it cleared, a buddy of mine in another town over, he still had television and power and he could see the radar. He texted me and said, go. So we jumped in the car and we drove. We drove through campus to get to the little highway here in town. And as we're driving through campus, we realize we're the only lights. We're the only car on the road. And we almost hit a diner that was in the middle of the road, you know, like those old school diners that picked it up and dropped it. Um, wow. We get we get to campus and the only thing we see on campus is flashing lights. So like um, I'm assuming ambulances or, or cop cars, that type of a thing. And my wife and I both freaked out because we also survived and uh, uh, we both went to Union University, which got hit with an F5 uh, whenever we were in in college and it leveled it and kids were stuck in buildings and this, that, and the other. And so in our minds, we're like PTSDing and we're like, Oh no, our students, let's stop and help them. And then the wife is like, we can't, my water's broke. Um, we had to drive an hour to get to our hospital. We get there every single delivery ward in the central counties of Oklahoma was packed because the barometric pressure of a tornadic storm breaks ladies water. 
and they go into labor. And so we rode that out that night and my baby was born the next morning. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. And thank God nobody at campus got hurt at all. Not a, not a scratch, mm. but, um, and if you're on Facebook or you go look up OKBU's uh, pictures from the tornado, I mean, most of the pictures, there's one picture where there's a, you can look into a lecture hall and because the whole wall is gone. That's my yeah. lecture hall. Like I was Maybe literally standing in there four hours before the tornado. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I remember you saying that that's a, that's a crazy story. Just the like chain of events, you being there, then, you know, going home and then like driving through, um, and then like getting to the hospital, all the ladies having their babies. That's yeah. And I'd never heard of that either. That the barometric pressure. I didn't know it was a thing till that night. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Well, you've been um, you you you're a um, you, you've been doing some stuff with Glow's House. You yeah. published with us. You you've been uh doing the podcast, obviously, which we love, and um, you know, you've been a a great blessing to Glow's House and. Uh, we're so glad you're part of our team. Um, and in, in this episode, we just kind of wanted to catch up and sure. uh, you've your, your first sort of a spate of episodes on the what's in the name segment is, yeah. is complete and yeah. kind of just reflect on that a little bit. It's built around the, the old Testament book names that yes. have a name. Right. Um, so I don't know where would you where you want to start. Let's uh, yeah let let's little... let's talk real quick about why I got into this concept of the hermeneutic of names. Um, I, I got to give credit where credit's due. My uh, one of my Hebrew professors named Jeff Griffin at New Orleans Seminary. He drilled into our heads because he was really teaching the narrative uh, hermeneutics in Hebrew. And he kept drilling into our heads. He's like. Guys, if you go to Israel and you do doctorate work there, which he had done, he said the first thing they do is translate the names before they start reading the story. And he said the names give away the story. Mm. Um, and so if you forget a lot of what's going on, just reflect back at who is being talked about at this point in time or who is speaking at this point in time. And their name will bring about um, a better hermeneutic of the story. Again, I don't think any of us at Glossa House, if you're listening to this podcast, have any sort of a secret agenda or some secret thing that you need to know the biblical languages. Otherwise, you don't know the secret sauce of the right. Bible. No, none of us at Glossa have that opinion. Um, we do, however, have the opinion that the biblical languages helps color the story. Absolutely. So it's kind of like, you know, Wizard of Oz and black and white versus color. Um, it's the same story. It's just one is a bit more enjoyable to those of us that have color mm -hmm. version television. Yeah. So I got into these name things because of Dr. Griffin, and it's been a, a habit of mine whenever I preach a text and I, I pastored for um, seven years before coming to the university, that if I'm handling a narrative, I always go, hey, you should know their name, write it in the top of your Bible on this page. And so I've just kind of practiced that in my own hermeneutic and in my preaching and teaching. And then whenever you approached me about this, like, hey, would you want to expound on that and, and grow it? Um, I, I had to say yes. And so the section that we just completed 
Lord willing, one day, should Christ not return, um, the first section of the book is going to be called Befitting Book Names. And that's what we just finished, Befitting Book Names. And initially, I had thought about doing that for New Testament as well with, you mm. know, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, mm. Paul, etc. I don't know, and because you're more of the Greek guy, so I would love to get your input on this. I don't know that Greek does as much wordplay with names as Hebrew does. And so I yeah, didn't want to cross into that. I think that's I think that's accurate because as you're talking, I'm sitting here thinking because I'm preaching through Mark. I've been preaching through yeah. a year and a half, writing a commentary. Mm. Um, you know, like well, just think of something like First Corinthians. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah Corinth is obviously important to that, but it doesn't give you everything. Like it, it doesn't doesn't seem to me to function the same way that the old testament right uh, book names do um or just in general like the names in the new testament don't seem to to carry as much with the person names right sometimes they do place names are very important sure um still i mean and and i've emphasized that from day one like pre sure. mark like location 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 geography is everything where something happens yeah. is absolutely critical in the story and so place names are important um but in and every now and then you'll get person names that are important but with with book names yeah it doesn't seem to at least those ones that like Matthew Mark Luke John like Peter sure. doesn't seem to carry as much significance as it does in the Hebrew or the Old Testament right right so um I, so I stopped whenever we got to Malachi. Yeah. I thought that was a good place. And then, so we'll circle back around. The next section that we'll do is um, uh, Pentateuch names is what we'll do next. And so. Are you going to go through and focus on um, like different characters in the narrative or how are you going to. For Pentateuch names? Yeah. Yes. So um, pertinent Pentateuch names is what this section is going to be called. So I'm not going to hit every name. I will, of course, yeah. hit the patriarchs and yeah. their spouses. Um, I think I might also pick up a few other like notable characters. Probably what I might do is consider the names that are, that are cycled by the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 mm -hmm. and bring in their names. Um, I think that mm -hmm. makes sense there That's as well. Yeah. So I haven't quite fully settled. Um, you know, I, we tend to think of like Aaron and, Joshua and Caleb, those guys in, in mm. toward the latter part of the Pentateuch. That's great. But also I want to kind of hit some of the other names that people often skip over the short narratives of. So, um, you know, I'm going to figure that out in some yeah. way. Yeah. Interesting. So as you were, as you've been going through, I mean, it's been, I don't know, like 20 plus weeks, you know, you've yeah. posted 20 plus episodes, two dozen episodes. Um, as you've been working uh, through these book names, I'm wondering, what have you learned? Like, what are some of sure. the, what have been some of the biggest takeaways that you, just you as a Hebrew scholar, as a professor have been like, hmm. oh, I didn't realize that. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, one of the takeaways, I'm currently working on a book on the canon for uh, Baker uh, Press, nice. um, looking at the Hebrew canon, so the Tanakh. 
and one of the interesting things that I was kind of reflecting on the other week, knowing this, this was upcoming, our interview was that the first name in the Bible, as far as the uh, prophetic text goes, that has a name attributed to it is Joshua, which is Yeshiahu, which is Yahweh saves. Mm. And then the first major prophet is Isaiah, Yeshiahu again. Um, and so again, Yahweh saves. So I, I think that's interesting mm. that the first prophet with a name ends up being Joshua. The first major prophet with a name ends up being Isaiah. So within the names, some of the things that I, I tended to grab from just broadly speaking and take away is one, the names tend, if, if, it's, if it's a prophetic name, it tends to point toward the action of the Lord, the action of the Lord. So you have the Lord will hide, Zechariah, right? Um, you have uh, the Lord will protect and gather, Habakkuk. Um, you, you have all of these. So most of these names, and of course, Joshua and Isaiah, as we brought up a second ago, the names of the books tend to point us toward the actions of Yahweh, um, which kind of preempts the story that's going to happen in the text. So when I have preached through the book of Joshua, I have done a lot of work looking at Joshua and the parallels of Joshua and Jesus, because there's a lot of parallels right. there. But I think Yehoshua's name points us to the fact that Yahweh is the one that should be focused on and not Joshua. Just like whenever we get to the New Testament, rightly we focus and say Jesus is the Savior, but we don't need to belittle the role of God the Father as we read through the text. And so that's one of those hermeneutic things that I, I kind of reflected on going back through this, and I'll bring into the book whenever I do that. Um, hmm. Another thought that I, I, I kind of took away, 30,000 foot level in regards to names, is just how um, sometimes they're debated. And that's going to take a bit of legwork on my part in the book because I, mm. you know, for the videos and quickness, I just go, here's what I, I think the name is. But there tends to be some debate as far as them. And there's really cool implications. And I don't think it's a bad thing. Um, yeah, right. And whenever I look at the three, four different options for the name meaning, they all tend to fit the story and they all tend to have a, a different hermeneutical impact. So uh, Samuel is the one that my professor, professor, listen to me, uh, that my president and I were discussing. Um, Shemuel, right, could be Shemuel, the name of El, mm -hmm. yeah. or it could be Shemuel, listen to God, or God right. listens. So really, that right in there is three ways, right? It could be the name of God, listen to God, or God listens. All three of those have a really interesting hermeneutic impact on the story of Samuel, especially in that first uh, uh, situation of Hannah praying for the, the Lord to give her a son. Um, that's why I lean towards Shmael, that uh, God heard her um, mm. and gave her a child. Uh, but also at the same time, Shem El, it is, Sam, it is Samuel that says the Lord will rest upon Saul or upon David. And so he has that ability as the highest ranked officer of the covenant to do that. So that's the second major point that I, I had takeaway of debate in regards to, okay, which name definition I wanted to use in the video. But again, I, I wasn't getting into those debates just because I'm trying to get through it quickly and just kind of right. punch out the eight minute, now go check it out thing.
Mm. Yeah, those are those are fascinating. The, the first one is uh, uh, about. So, were you implying as far as like mm. uh, the prophets then, uh, Joshua, Isaiah? I mean, that they have like a of of forward pointing or upward point, like a Christocentric or messianic bent to them, or um, what would be the implication of that? Yeah, I don't know. I think as Christians, we can look backwards and say messianic or Christocentric. I think at their time, that would not be the right thing. I think at their time, they're upward pointing. Again, um, if you're listening to this podcast and you don't know what I'm talking about, I would tell you to look at Paul House, Officers of the Covenant. Um, Go look at Sandra Richter in her book, Epic of Eden, Um, because the prophets are the intermediaries between God and man. Um, and they're speaking on behalf of God to man. And so a lot of times whenever they come forth and they say, thus says Yahweh, uh, they're going to declare what is wrong or what Yahweh is going to do about it. And sometimes both. Um, and their name tends to fit exactly that message. So I tend to think that their name is upward pointing uh, mm. more than Messianic or Christocentric. I, you could do that with Joshua. Um, messianic Christocentric, I'd be fine with that. Yeah. So, so this interesting. I mean, um, especially to hear a, a, a Baptist preacher uh, <laughs> say this. <laughs> All right. So, so I spent a year and a half preaching through Genesis. I just okay. went episode by episode, all the way Genesis one to Genesis fifty, right? Um, mm. And I, I didn't use a christocentric hermeneutic i let genesis be sure genesis sure you know, um and i i didn't feel a need to like to drag jesus into every sermon now okay i know a lot of my i know a lot of um uh a lot of folks would be frustrated with me for mm-hmm. that well, how, how can you even call it a sermon if it doesn't mention christ and maybe even carl bart might be uh upset with me over that you know um yeah, thinking about his, I'm writing right now on his doctrine of the Word of God, which is okay. really fascinating. Yeah, and um, he's got this this whole idea that the Word of God is Christ, who is the mm. revelation of God, and then mm-hmm. um, so he is the living Word of God. But mm-hmm. the way that we, the way that we um, encounter the living Word of God is that when we go to the written, lowercase Word of God. Um, we we encounter Christ in it, and when we mm. encounter Christ in the the lowercase word of God, then it becomes the uppercase word of God, which is a really fascinating idea. Right. But only because God gave us the faith to realize that mm. you know this this written word of God is pointing to the living word of God, mm. and then we proclaim this truth and preach the word of God, and it becomes the preached word of God. Sure. It's like this really fascinating multi-tiered. Um, interweaving hermeneutic, and so mm-hmm. I'm I'm studying Bart for a couple of talks I'm giving this semester, and um, I was a little my conscience was a little pricked <laughs> last night even as I was reading out and I was thinking back to Genesis like I didn't I didn't bring Jesus into these sermons mm. like I let Genesis be Genesis yeah did I fail to preach the Word of God at least according mm. to Bart and I don't think I did but um. 
I have a lot of preacher friends who would say that very thing that if you don't bring Christ into the sermon, what's the point of it? You know, right. Uh, right. if you don't bring Christ into it, you haven't preached the word of God. So what what are your what's your take on that? I mean, especially as an Old Testament scholar, Hebrew scholar, mm-hmm. um and and this whole idea of if you don't mention Christ, it can't even be called a, a sermon, a Christian sermon anyway. Yeah, so um I one, I my mind goes to Second Corinthians of every promise finds its yes and amen in Christ. And so I think Paul was encouraging the Corinthians as they handled the text that they had at the hand, which was the Old Testament, mm-hmm. um, to recognize Christ in that. I think, two, we could go back and look at Jesus expounding upon every verse as it points to himself, that that gives us liberty to do that as well. As an Old Testament scholar, though, I will let the text handle itself first. Mm. Um, as a distinct witness, and I'm kind of channeling Selhammer here, and let the text proclaim Christ on its own. Hmm. Um, uh, so my Old Testament theology master students this past semester had to go through the theology of the Pentateuch from uh, Selhammer. They hated me for it. It's a 500-page tome. I, I don't blame them, but it's, it's necessary for grad level. And I love what he says in there. People have ignored the Old Testament because they don't see Christ. Mm. Yet the Old Testament for thousands of years has proclaimed Christ. Mm. And so when I preach through a text of the Old Testament, say Joshua, since we brought that up earlier, I've done Genesis like you just have. I did Leviticus before, bro. Mm -hmm. That's hard for pulpit. But if the text doesn't ooze. So whenever I preach, say, for instance, Leviticus 16, um, which is Day of Atonement, and I'm thinking through this and I'm preaching this text, I want the people in the pew to be going, come on, say the name, say the name. Mm. Mm. So just, just, just say it. You know, it's kind of like at the end of every mm. Avengers movie where Captain says, Avengers, and then, you know, the credits roll. We mm. all know, assemble. Um, I think the Old Testament text is the same way. And for my students, for myself, for my parishioners, when I'm preaching in the pulpit, if I handle God's word correctly, they're all going to scream, Jesus, just as we do assemble Mm. as soon as the credits roll. Um, I think that's handling the Old Testament correctly. It's letting it stand on its own. It's letting it defend Christ on its own unapologetically. I don't think the Old Mm. Testament, dare I say, needs us to defend it. I think it proclaims Jesus through and through. And so uh, let's take C.S. Lewis and just unleash the, the lion. He said, the only thing you need to do to defend a lion is but open the cage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think we just need to open the cage of the Old Testament and let it defend Jesus. Mm. Um, now, I do, however, as an Old Testament scholar, pump the brakes and say, let's understand it as they understood it in yeah. their context, but then see the yes and amen in Jesus. Mm. And so where this becomes a real rub, I think, for New Testament Christians is they don't know or they don't follow through to see the, the what um, um, in hermeneutic textbooks we tend to call the partial fulfillment. Um, we tend to jump straight to the perfect fulfillment. So mm. we just came through Advent. 
you know, and so we could think about uh, the handles Messiah, right? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Yes, we should say Jesus. But at that point in time, that right. is not what they needed. Yeah, They needed the Hezekiah um, who would bring about a great revival. And I find the first yes and amen in Hezekiah, but I find the ultimate yes and amen in Jesus. Mm. And so as an, old, as an Old Testament scholar, I always pump the bricks and go, hey, I want you to understand how amazing this is that God gave them at their point in time what they needed and also promised to give them the ultimate what they needed. And so that's my job as an Old Testament scholar is to pump the brakes and go, let's pause. Let's see the yes and amen for their life. And then by the time I'm done preaching, you should be standing up, jumping, waving your hanky, going, Jesus, because that then I handled the text correctly. Hmm. I like that. That's a great analogy, that, that Avengers analogy. And it it um it'll it alleviates. Right. So so the one thing. um I, I I really struggle with like going to Genesis and uh, not letting Genesis speak on its own terms and like Genesis mm -hmm. Genesis so the way that story works sure. is incredible um, you know and there there are so many themes in that first chapter yeah. first couple chapters that make their way throughout the rest of the book and and carry and the sort of narrative structure of that and the substructure of that is pretty incredible so let that stand on its own. Yeah, I really like, I really like letting that happen, and then uh, letting the people in the the pews in the congregation, yeah, like let's let's preach in such a way that they're making these connections, and um, yeah, they're kind of doing some of the heavy lifting. Then I mean, sure, we, we sort of it's like a joke, right? Um, right. I I I write the setup, and then they they do the punchline kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Have you so ever that, preached? Have you ever preached in an African-American church? I've only preached in an African church, not African-American. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I will hope and pray that one day you get to preach in a deep South African-American Baptist church. Okay. Um, growing up in New Orleans, you, I had plenty of opportunities to preach in, in African-American churches of my buddies, et cetera. And they would let me do pulpit swap with them. And one of the things that I love about an African-American church is you start going and they, they talk back to you. Mm -hmm. And so right. I remember once I was preaching through Isaiah, uh, I forget which text off the top of my head. And I, and I, I read the verse getting ready for the next point in the sermon. And this sweet old lady on the front row grabs her hanky out. She goes, I know where you're going. I know where you're going. Come on, preacher. Come on. Say it, Jesus. Say it, Jesus, preacher. Come on. Say it, Jesus. And I went, I now understand what Selhammer was talking about, mm. that the, the unique witnesses testify to Jesus. And if you know the Jesus, I don't have to say Jesus from the pulpit. If I handle mm. the text correctly, you're going to be going, that's Jesus. That's Jesus. Wow. So, Dude, um, that's an yeah. incredible story. Wow. So that's what I aim for whenever I preach is that they fill in the gaps. Like you said, it's setting up the joke for lack of better terms. Um, and then they have the walk away of, Oh, now I get it. But again, as an old Testament scholar, I find what we have to do is not point Jesus out in the text as much as it is. Tell them the first fulfillment. Hmm. Most people know Jesus from the, uh, 
the Messiah passage of Isaiah. The very few of them will think about Mahershala Hazraz, if it's Isaiah's son, or Hezekiah, who comes up shortly thereafter, and what either of those had done as royals in, in Israel at that point in time. Um, so my job is to go, okay, before you jump to Jesus, let's look at the amen in this generation's life. That's great. Yeah. Well, I really like that. Um, and it's a, it's a, it's a, um, it's an, a non-arrogant way, the way you've like described that, right? Because it, it'd be very easy for somebody who went through seminary and has enough knowledge to sort of just be dangerous to get up in a pulpit and be like, this isn't about Jesus. Mm -hmm. Um, This, and and sort of like, you know, like put the stake down there and, and all of a sudden people are like, what? You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's about, you know, was it Hezekiah? Sure. uh, First. And then that in turn points to uh, Jesus, or as you said it, the first, uh, amen and and the ultimate amen. Yeah, yeah, yep. Those are those are really helpful um, helpful analogies. The Avengers one, the the story of the lady in the church, uh, the the first and ultimate amen. So those yeah. are some things uh, I'll have to put in my repertoire and and remember. Those are really good. Let me let me give you my final one that I use in hermeneutics yeah. class. Then since you're liking them, um, let's imagine I come to you and I'm like, Michael, I have great news for you. You're like, yeah, but in 500 years, your family is going to be billionaires. Okay. Exactly. You're going to go, that don't help me. I got to pay the bill man out my door. Exactly. When we read the Old Testament, we better see that God paid for what they needed that day mm. and also gives a great blessing to the generations yet to come. What we skip if we don't handle the then and there is we think that Jesus is only for us. But the reality of it is, is that God wants to be known and he wants to know every generation and every person uniquely. Mm. And so you're Mm. right going through Genesis as you did, but let's not skip over the ultimate amen as well. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Interesting. That's, that's, um, even with Jonah, right? Like mm. I, I preach through Jonah. Let Jonah be Jonah. Gosh, it's such a fun and rich story. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't like this. I need to preach Jesus and give an altar call every time or something right. like that. It's like let's let's just dive into Jonah and let it be Jonah. Um, and yeah, I don't know. So man, you you've got me. You've also got me thinking back about, um, yeah, thinking backward and forward at the moment. So yeah, these are always fun. Fun. This is a fun thing to to wrestle with. I think. Um, I think one I of the things Mark and Jesus is like every second of Mark. <laughs> sure. <laughs> I, I think one of the things that that the authors, um, Earth human authors, did within the text for us is use literary tools in their tool belt at that day and age to help ground us even in our year that we're operating in. And one of those tools is names. It grounds us in the reality of, okay, don't overlook the character Mm. and the personhood and the actions of God in this story, i.e. the name that is being handled. Likewise, um, 
and this is where whenever I teach uh, Hebrew, I look at chiasms all the time. Hebrew yeah. loves chiasms. And that is a very common literary tool that they had in their tool belt. Yeah. And it points the reader to don't forget this point of the story. This is the main point that we're talking about. Right. And so as we do hermeneutics, and that's what we're, we've been hunting around in this video, is you know, before we get to the point of, of filling the pulpit and opening our mouths, we have legwork to do. Mm -hmm. And some of the legwork is, as you brought up, how is this teaching about Jesus? And how much do I emphasize that? How much do I blatantly say that or not? Um, then the other thing is, is the linguistics. And the first thing, linguistically speaking, that I tell my students to do, that I personally do as well, is translate names. Mm. Second, I look at verbs. Um, and then third, I look at structure and wordplay yeah. um, that's happening in the text. And so that's why for this video series, I started out with doing names, because that's literally the first thing that I investigate um, when considering the language at hand in whatever text I'm proclaiming. I also think there's a, um, a one, I think that New Testament, you know, Christian mm. churches, whatever, have have not given fair treatment to the Old Testament. I mean, oh, agreed. it's, uh, you know, um, it's it's been neglected. Yeah. For, for lack of a better term. And um, the second thing, because of that, people just don't know what to do with it. You were yeah. kind of alluding to that. Uh, earlier but third i think people you know we live in a like instant gratification world sure people people want to rush just give me the jesus and it's like no no like they had to wait thousands of years mm. to get jesus like we can wait we can wait a year and a half to get through genesis yeah um you know you know to get to the punchline you know, so to speak, like, let's, let's build that anticipation. So yeah. I think like as a preacher thinking over the long run, like of a preaching tenure, preaching through a book over a year and a half, like letting, letting that slowly build without that sort of instant gratification, Jesus thing. Like, um, so there's like that kind of strategy too, uh, which makes me feel a little bit better about, <laughs> about what I did. Yeah. Uh, so. Well, and not every sermon mandates an altar call of evangelism. Yeah. Um, and I know that's not very Baptist of me to say. <laughs> um, but sometimes the text is speaking to the believers, yeah. not to the non-believers. Yeah. And also, so we have like, to be cognizant of that. You know, I, I pastor a small church, just 40 mm. to 50 people. Mm -hmm. I know every person in there. Yeah. I know what they're going through. Every yeah. last one of them, right? Yeah. Um, I know when a visitor is there, we're small, mm -hmm. very small. And um, so the way I view Sunday mornings, for example, when I preach is as discipleship time, not as mm. evangelism time. Sure. Um, these people sitting here don't need evangelized. They've already mm -hmm. been evangelized. They need disciples. Yeah. And um, so we do, I preach pretty meaty, scriptural, meaty theological um, terms. Like, I mean, just last week, uh, I have a word of the week every week in my sermon. Yay. A nice, nice feature. It's like if you're not going to learn anything, you're going to learn one word. At the very least, you're going to learn a word today. And so like last week, it was actually two words. It was Christosis and Theosis. Oh, yeah. So like I'm, inter I'm introducing like a meaty, even just theological concept all the time. 
Um, so yeah, but I, I think that's, uh, I think that's an interesting way to like, think about the sort of long run as a preacher and building up to, I mean, we kind of like play with that during Advent, like, sure. let's, let's wait, let's take three or four weeks to build up to, you know, the birth. Um, hmm. But what, what if we think about that over, you know, a longer period when we're preaching through an Old Testament book kind of thing? Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Um, here's something interesting, circling back to Mark. Right? Okay. Um, so the story of Mark opens. So I'm in Mark 10 right now. Just hmm. just preaching through. I just preached 10, 13 to 16 yesterday where Jesus um, says, you know, don't. Don't let go. Let the children come to me. Right. So the story right before that is the first 12 verses of Mark is um, there there where the religious officials are asking him about his views on marriage, divorce, remarriage, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. talks about adultery as well. So it's back up now. Um, in Mark one, the story opens with John the baptizer uh, out. He's at the Jordan River. Mm-hmm. just north of the Dead Sea, um, and he's baptizing. All his people, right, are flooding out to him. So we know that, we know his location, and yeah. um, it's in the territory of Herod Antipas at mm-hmm. the time. Yep. So he's preaching repentance, and he's preaching repentance while he's baptizing. He's re- preaching repentance while he's baptizing in the territory of Herod Antipas, who... At the start of, or just prior to Mark's story, had divorced his wife and taken his brother's wife. Mm. So, right, he's preaching repentance essentially to Herod, mm. who had just committed adultery and incest. Mm-hmm. Um, or within so the he, earshot of. Yeah, and so he gets arrested, right? He gets arrested, gets put in prison, right down on the the uh, eastern bank, I think it is, of the, the Dead Sea at Machairus, one of Herod's yeah. outposts. And um, in Mark 6, we learned that um, he still got Herod's ear, hmm. you know, and Herodias beheads him, which is symbolic of shutting him up. You right. Know, he's still calling him in repentance, and he's beheaded. So you, you go along, and then Mark 10 opens, and what it is, I called it like a soft reboot of Mark's gospel, hmm. because geographically what has happened is that Jesus is headed south from the Galilee, and I believe he's ended up back where the story starts. So hmm. The whole baptizing thing happened. Hmm. And so as soon as he's back in the same territory that John the baptizer was calling uh, Herod and others to repentance, yeah. the very first thing they do is ask Jesus questions about marriage, divorce, remarriage, adultery, hoping hmm. that he'll say the same thing that John said sure. so that he has the same fate that John had. So that that's pretty interesting to me um, um, when you think about uh, the Jordan, uh, Judea beyond the Jordan, where that location they're at, the name, the geographical significance. Now here's something really fascinating. We don't have to dive into this. So I preached the next few verses, 13 to 16, yesterday. Mm. And it's this whole thing, the story, Mark 10, 13, Jesus, uh, that people are bringing their kids to Jesus so he can lay hands on them. Luke actually says infants. Mm. Um, and then uh, 
10.16 says that he puts his hands upon them and he blesses them. Um, and so it would make sense to me uh, that maybe since they're at the same site of baptizing activity, that perhaps Jesus is baptizing these children. But there's also this, this scholar named J. Duncan Derrick, and he, he makes this interesting thing. He's like, well, what is the blessing? What is the blessing that Jesus is speaking over them? And he points back to Genesis 48, the blessing of Ephraim and Manasseh. Hmm. And he's making the case that, that that is, in fact, the blessing that Jesus is speaking over these little kids as they, they come to him. You know, um, and, and I find that. And yeah, he's literally in the region of Ephraim and Manasseh. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, so very, I mean, just all these like uh, mm-hmm. connections within Mark itself, but then back to the Old Testament. Sure. Um, yeah, I don't know. I just find that fascinating. I do got a one more question for you and we can wrap up here. Okay. Um, there's a, I've always lived in a little, uh, wrestled with this a little bit a lot or a little bit. Um, What's your take on referring to the the thirty nine books as the the, the Tanakh, right, as the mm. Old Testament over and against the Hebrew Bible or the Hebrew mm. Scriptures? What do you think? What 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 do you tend to call? Yeah. Okay. So I'm again. I'm writing this book, Lord willing, um, for Baker. Uh, our president just did an Old Testament survey following the Tanakh order. So uh, Pentateuch, mm. then um, Navim, the prophets, and then the Ketuvim, the writings. Um, I agree with him and numerous other people. Uh, I can give you a list of everybody, but most people, and I agree, when speaking about the three structure of the Old Testament, so the prophets, uh, sorry, the Pentateuch prophets and the writings, I will call that either the Tanakh or the Hebrew Bible. But when referring to the four structure, which is what we have in English Bibles, it, which follows the Septuagint order, um, I will call it the Old Testament. And so my students know in class which one I'm referring to whenever I say that. And, I'm, and, I, and I stay consistent so that way they know, hey, if I say Hebrew Bible or Tanakh, I mean the three part. If I say Old Testament, I mean the four part. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of scholars that do that. Um, the canon section of the Old Testament at ETS this year in November, um, you had Miles Van Pelt, you had uh, John Mead, you had uh, um, uh, Peter Gentry presented in there and several other people, and they were discussing this. Um, why do we stick with the four-part order instead of the three-part order, and then how do we refer to both? And it seems that the consensus of, at least in a room full of a couple hundred scholars that are Old Testament professors, is that when referring to the three part, we either call it the Hebrew Bible or the Tanakh, and when the four part, we call it the Old Testament. So why would we why would we refer to it as the three part over and against the four part? Like, what's the strategy for that? Like, what is why that do we mean? prefer it? Is that what your question is? Um, because you you said you you say both, right? Um, so why would you? Well, yeah. Why would you refer to the three part and uh, the four part? Like, what's yeah? The, so, why the would I bring it up? Is your question? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Why would I bring it up? Is because of the canonical seams. And again, I would tell you go uh, see Cellhammer. 
yeah. go gotcha. see Von Rod on this, where those books butt up to one another. Yeah. It has a different hermeneutical impact than it yeah. does in the form. Um, for the listeners that don't know, since Michael clearly knows what I'm talking about, uh, if we go with the book of Ruth, okay, mm-hmm. Ruth in the English Bible, i.e. the Old Testament in my lingo, it follows the book of Judges because it begins in chapter one of Ruth. During the time that the judges were judging, there was a man named Elimelech, okay? But in the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, um, the book of Ruth actually follows Proverbs 31. Mm-hmm. And so the, the, yeah. the Masoretes who organized the three-part canon wanted you to read into the text of the book of Ruth that Ruth is the proverbial woman of Proverbs 31. Yeah, that's great, yeah. So right. there are times and reasons for bringing up the Hebrew order versus the Greek-English order of the Old Testament. You're in Mark, but whenever I preached through Matthew last, I constantly brought up uh, the book of Chronicles. Because in the Hebrew Bible, the book of Chronicles is the end of the Old Testament, okay? Um, and then you would turn the page and you would go into Matthew. Well, that may not make sense because very few people read Chronicles anyway. But the end of the book of Chronicles talks about the prophesied coming king is one that is of priestly royal lineage. Then you turn the page and what do you get? Matthew's genealogy, which is priestly royal lineage. That's and of great. course, Matthew is the gospel of the king. If we were to uh, channel, uh, say, Eichrot and how he speaks of it. Um, and so it only makes sense if it's the gospel of the king to talk about Chronicles preempting the page before yeah. and going into now, look here, behold, priest king fulfilling it. Wow. Those are great. Those are great examples. And so the strategy is, is built around those scenes. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's brilliant. It's super helpful. Thanks for sharing that. Um, well, man, I appreciate your, uh, your time today. You've educated us. You've given us some good analogies. Um, <laughs> yeah, some good stuff. So, um, people can check you out at Dr. Mario. Dot M E. Yeah. yeah dot, dot me. Dr. Mario dot me. Um, and do you have social media handles listed there? Uh, yeah, there's links. So yeah, I don't do much via any- social media. My yeah. blood pressure can't take X anymore. <laughs> oh man, it's I'm on a pill now for my blood pressure, so I don't push it. <laughs> um Yeah, it's it's getting wild out there. So well man, you guys check out uh Dr. Mario.me. He's got a YouTube page, he's got um got some great stuff, uh Hebrew grammar that's out and a few other books at glowsahouse.com. Yeah. Yeah, this has been a really fun conversation, dude. Very edifying for me too. So um always appreciate you man and and i'm so thankful that you're part of the glow house family glow house team uh we're really grateful for you man man i appreciate um, it so much glosa has yeah. been a blessing in my life too so yeah you keep up keep up the good work man with your your teaching there and your writing ministry and um we're, we appreciate you and for you guys watching if you would uh please uh like the video please uh share it and uh subscribe to the channel and We'd love to get the word out about this. The podcast is growing. Um, it's really fun to watch that. And we have some ambitious goals for it for this year. And uh, we hope that's, you know, it's only going to grow more. So Amen. thank you all. Take care. And Thanks, uh, guys. we hope that helps. 
Interested in growing your ancient language skills but not sure where to start? Glossa House can help. From illustrated readers and short stories to lexicons and grammars, Glossa House offers a variety of resources for beginning, intermediate, and experienced ancient language learners. Head to glossahouse.com today. Glossa House, language resources for the global community.